Yeah, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you again. I'm just going to... Should I put this down? Um, uh, good morning, friends. My name is Ire, uh, and thanks so much for inviting me back here. It seems that I've passed one week of tests. Uh, good. Uh, and happy birthday as well. Gosh, that's amazing. 40 years? Oh, man, that's amazing. I'm so thankful to God that this church has been meeting for 40 years. That's amazing. Uh, and despite uh, us, us being us in a different place, I'm really glad that we were able to celebrate that together. Um, yes, it was mentioned that um, I uh, this sermon is at a very much earlier stage than usually. Um, it's because of it's, it's, it's my fault, it's me. Um, I have to go and preach uh, at Captivate uh, right after this, so please do. Um, understand. Uh, I'm going to pray again and ask God for help as we go through this psalm together. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for being a God who is eternal. We thank you for your eternal covenant that has given us all the assurance that we are in Christ and that means that we are friends with you, that we have forgiveness from you and that we will live with you forever. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness especially to the church at Cherrybrook. And Father, we ask that through the many years of uh, faithful gospel ministry and preaching of your word, Father, we ask that you would help Cherrybrook and uh, all our churches in Sydney to continually preach the gospel so that it may grow and it may go out into all the world. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Is God's worth living? Is God's cause worth living, rather? Is God worth living for? And the answer is, well, yes, of course. Um, I wonder whether you know the name John Allen Chow. Uh, he was around 26 years old. He lived in the US. He grew up there. He played soccer. Apparently, he was very good at rock climbing and traveling around the world. And he loved Jesus. A couple years back, he traveled to a remote island near India the place of the North Sentinelese. Um, what John did was he went to visit a hostile tribe to preach the gospel. And in 2018, he died in a hail of arrows fired by angry tribal men. News articles of this man splashed headlines such as, Slain US missionaries' crazy plan to convert world's most reclusive tribe. A U.S. preacher repeatedly imposed himself on a reclusive Stone Age tribe in a bid to convert them to Christianity until they snapped. A bizarre plan, they called it. In one article titled, Evangelism is a Form of Colonialism, the journalist starts off by saying, Inasmuch as I sympathize in the missionary who met his untimely death, in this article, I make the case that evangelism is unethical and nothing short of colonialism. Yes, I still identify as a Christian and I still believe the gospel. However, I agree, oh, sorry, I disagree with the normalized and principal medium of spreading it. It's a weird time that we live in, and this week we saw it, uh, especially in Victoria, where people who are friends of God, seems to be the enemies of humanity. The man who was preached to send and proclaim the gospel 
becomes a cranial lunatic. Let's say John Allen Chow's family came through that door and sat right next to you. They'll have to sit in the overflow. Why is God's core cause worth living? Is God worth living for? Let's say they ask you that question. What would you say to them? That's the right answer. <laughs> right, and that's my sermon. <laughs> it's slightly more difficult if you say it to their face because you know what they're going through. You know the cost that they had to pay, what their son had to go through. Now, evil and suffering, they are realities in our world. And the question that we have in our minds is, is God steadfast in his love? Well, our psalm is great because it answers that question for us today. I'll, I'll take us through uh, three points, and uh, if you're wondering where we are, I'll, I'll, I'll let us know. And the outline is also um, on uh, the little thingy. Um, three points that you can see. First is evil in God's world. And we'll talk about judgment day in God's world. And then finally, we'll finish off with thinking about the olive tree in God's world. And by the end, as we reflect on these three things, I really do hope that the thing that we'll see is evil does not make sense because God is steadfast in his love for us. Evil does not make sense because God is steadfast in his love for us. So we're at point one. Um, have a look at verse one there. You can see the psalm. It begins actually by addressing not God, but this mighty man of evil. So I'll read verse um, verses 1 to 3. It's after the subscript. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You who are disgraced in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. Notice there how dangerous but also how effective he is in doing evil. He seems to be rather good at it. He's well known for it. He's not just, oh, that's a bad man, or that's a bad child. This guy is very good at being evil. That's his modus operandi. He practices deceit. His tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. He's very effective at being evil. Also notice how deep the evil goes into his life. Notice it's not just the things on his outside. So it's not just his actions. It's his, it's his word. It's almost his being. This is evil personified. This mighty man is not only effective at evil. That's who he seems to be at his very core. He is evil. He loves evil. See, it's even reached down into his passions. It's not just the decisions he makes. It comes out of who he is. You can't mess around with this figure. He's dangerous. He's mighty. He's evil. Who is this man? Uh, who is this evil one? Well, we can see some clues here. If you notice the um, verse zero, or you know the subs, the subscript, the title there uh, to the psalm, um, that is actually part of, of holy scripture, and so we we acknowledge that as being part of God's breathed word. And I think there, God himself gives us some clues as to who the evil man is. Read the subscript there. He says, For the director of music, a 
masculine of David when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. What's going on here? Um, when's the last time the cherry book went through 1 Samuel? A little while ago? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Less than 40 years. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My yeah. Very good, very good, very good. Well, um, this this episode, and um, yeah, if, if you're aware of it, you'll know where this is going. Um, it, it's found within the middle of 1 Samuel, and King Saul, he wants to kill David. That's what he wants to do. Uh, because for Saul, David is a threat to his kingdom. So David then runs away to the temple, to the place where the priest Ahimelech is, and he gets provisions uh, and then goes into hiding. Now, we're told that at that moment when the priest helps David, a man called Doeg was there. But meanwhile, look at Saul, and he's running around trying to find Saul, uh, trying to find David. He wants to remove the threat. He wants to be king, but he just can't find David. So he's upset. Uh, Saul's upset. He's upset with his own men and says, look, all the things that I've done for you, you've done nothing for me. Why don't you give me some information? Does anyone know where David is? Doeg says, I do. So Doeg takes Saul and his men to the house of Ahimelech. Saul asks the priest, why are you conspiring against me? The priest says, I have, I have no idea what you mean by that. Saul says, you're dead. Now he tries to get his men to kill the priest, but his men are from Israel and they don't want to touch the priest. He asks Edom, uh, uh, Doeg, the Edomite, the Gentile, to do it for him. And this is from 1 Samuel 22, verses 18 to 19. And I'll read what happened after. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Men, women, children, all slain because of Saul's own greed. Think about the priests of the Lord on the floor of the temple, the stains of blood in the homes, all because of the greed and stone-cold malice of Doeg the Edomite. I think for Saul and Doeg, if you think about it, evil paid off. It worked. Imagine if you were the town next to Nob, you would have got the message. Saul's dangerous. He can get what he wants. He can use force and get what he wants. He is effective. Evil paid off. Think about it. They got rid of the enemy. At this point, Saul and Doeg are champions. They are mighty. They are conquering. They are in control. What makes this event so tragic and confusing is when we realize that it goes against God's own promises. For in the book of 1 Samuel, the Lord had used Samuel to anoint David as God's chosen king. The, the spirit of the Lord left Saul and went instead to David. So in God's eyes, David was to be king. He was God's chosen one. Yet where's David now? He's in hiding He's running away. He's a fugitive. I mean, think about it. You, 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 can't, you can't hear infants cry in the town of Nob anymore. You won't hear any cows lowing. 
There's no pronouncement or declaration or any sort of evidence that David is king. At this point in 1 Samuel, there is no indication whatsoever that God's way is winning. And there is every indication at this point that Saul is mighty. So instead of God's promised king on the throne, we see Doeg the Edomite standing over the priests. Is God's cause worth living for? Is it worth celebrating? If you ask the people who heard about the slaying at Nob, it would be a very difficult question to answer. Or for a moment, it seems it's not. It's hopeless. Now, you might have missed it, and um, I, I know I did when I first read Psalm 52, but there's something out of place in, in verses 1 to 3. Let me read it for you again. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? Who You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love your every, sorry, you love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God. It's very small. It's one word, God. But in a way, in, the, in David's mind, as he's writing the psalm, he has still a holding belief that God is in control, that the man of evil cannot be outside the purview of God. God is still in control. You can't take him out of the picture. You see, this psalm is actually not a psalm of lament. It's not a psalm of grief. It's not even a psalm of complaint. He's not grieving. He's not complaining. He's not suffering like the other psalms. The psalmist is bold. Why would you do this, evil man? How can you do this, evil man? Are you not... Can't you see that you are a disgrace to God? This is a bold psalm. This is a courageous psalm. He is so confident in judgment day, he knows the steadfast love of God that will endure forever. And so he declares to the evil one, because that's who is addressing here, remember? He's declaring to the mighty evil one, you will be judged. That is what he's trying to communicate to the evil man. So at, at this point in the psalm then, we get a glimpse into Judgment Day. And so that's where we're up to, point two, Judgment Day in God's world. Um, one of the things I, I love about the Psalms in general is the, its imagery. Uh, it, it, it's so poetic. There are so many images and things going on that just uh, prose sometimes cannot. It lifts you up, it takes you into places and emotions and lets you hear things that you can't really hear in the text when you're reading, for example, the letter to Ephesians. Um, Judgment Day. Let me show you what I mean. The cinematography of the psalm, it really comes out when it describes the day of judgment. Have a look at verse 4 and 5. You'll see there the first scene. You'll see, think about a camera, sort of uh, zooms in first, showing what God does to evil. 
You love every harmful word, verse 4. You deceitful tongue. Verse 5, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Then in verses 6 and 7, the camera sort of pans to focus on the righteous ones who are watching all of this happen. So you see here in verse 4 to 5, you can notice there that uh, the steadfast love of God Though it was just mentioned in one little phrase in verse 1, in this second scene in verses 4 and 5, it seems to be more at the forefront of what's going on. It's much larger. You compare the first three verses to the, the verses 4 and 5, the evil man is shrinking to the background and God is more at the forefront. He's at the center. He's at the center. So here is evil. Right here, he's condemned by God, and it's a certainty. It's a certainty. But that's not all that we'll see on Judgment Day. So have a look at verses 6 and 7. The righteous, so we're, we're panning the camera to see the righteous. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth, and grew strong by destroying others look at verse 6 they they see uh, fear and then laugh at the situation now uh, it's it's not a taunting sort of laughter it's more of an astonishment oh i just can't believe that happened that astonishment laughing so look at why they're laughing at verse 7 this is what they see here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Evil will be condemned. Evil will be destroyed. That is what we will see on Judgment Day. So why then is God's cause worth living for? Because evil will be judged. Evil will be defeated. That's why. We see the victory of good over evil here. Now, um, if there's any part of the Bible the world should love, think about it, isn't it? Isn't it this part? This is the part of the Bible where our world should be like, yes, I believe the Bible. This is so true. We want justice. We want evil to be destroyed. That is, that is what we fight for. A very simple reading of Psalm 52 puts justice of the psalmist in the same line as justice as uh, is popular these days in our public discourse, we want racial justice, economic justice. We want climate justice, gender justice, animal justice, LGBTI justice. We want Psalm 52 justice. That is what we want. Now, on the one hand, justice is good because there are many things wrong with our world, and we have to recognize that. Yet on the other hand, the many causes of justice makes you think, well, how do you know which justice is the best justice? Which is the right one and which is the wrong one? How do you know which cause is worth fighting for? Which is the one worth celebrating the most? For the psalmist and probably for us, it's very clear. Justice is God's cause. Justice is God's cause. God's cause is true justice. 
then someone will say, why? Why is God's cause justice more than the justice that I want for myself? Well, think of David again, uh, the man who wrote this psalm. Why does David think God's cause is worth celebrating and fighting for? Is he celebrating? Think about it. Is David only celebrating because he won? His king, he wants his enemies destroyed. That's the only reason why he's celebrating. Is he celebrating only because his situation got better? Sometimes we think that uh, history was written by victors. Well, David's the one who's writing the psalm. Maybe David's celebrating his own victory. Now think about us who follow Jesus. Do, do we continue in our faith because it's good for us? It helps us be comfortable in the life that we live. And so the reason why we preach the gospel is because we want our life to stay the way that it is. It protects our way of life. Are we Christians? I guess this is the question that I'm asking. Are we Christians because it makes us feel better about ourselves? If we ask, is God's cause worth living for? We say yes, because, well, it's good for me. But the psalmist, he would gently take us aside and say, it's actually not the right way. Why is God's cause worth living for? For the psalmist, it seems to be the steadfast love of God. The steadfast, um, the word steadfast means solid. Uh, think of a, a, a very steady anchor uh, or a, a, a mighty tree with very deep roots. That's sort of the idea of steadfast. Think of the father who always keeps his promises. On Mount Sinai, after he saves Israel out of Egypt, God reveals who he is. And when God reveals his name, he re first reveals what's at the core of who he is. And if you remember from Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Being steadfast, being reliable in his love is at the very core of who God is. And in Psalm 52, despite evil being a reality, he wants us to know that God is steadfast in his love for us. So we asked the very, uh, at the start, right, the question, uh, why is God's cause worth living for? According to Psalm 52, it's because God is steadfast in his love. That's it. Now, it's as if in, in verse 1, if we think about uh, Psalm 52 in its whole, it seems like verse 1, where he's describing the mighty man of evil, God is still recognized as being the God of steadfast love. Then as you sort of go on, that black mass of evil seems to retreat into the background as the light of God and who he is as being steadfast becomes clearer and brighter and brighter. Then in verse 8 and 9, the darkness of evil sort of disappears under the light of judgment. And we see at the very end, it's very bright spotlight right over this green olive tree. And this green olive tree. Let's think about this, this, this olive tree in God's world. I'll just read for us uh, verses 8 and 9. You can see there. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love. 
forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. The image of the olive tree here. It's green olive tree. It's rich. It's fruitful. It's abounding in many things. Uh, the psalmist thinks that he is like the tree. Think about the tree in Psalm 1. The tree planted by streams of water. Uh, in its fruit, it bears, uh, sorry, it bears fruit in its seasons. Its leaf does not wither. Yet, it's not because the olive tree is awesome by itself. The tree is not rich in growing because it is able to grow itself. Where is the olive tree? In verse 8, flourishing in the house of God. In the house of God. In the house of God. It's a safe and special place to God. So this olive tree is safe and special to God. It's, it's uh, set apart. It's chosen, this olive tree. The image is used to describe the truth and the trust that the psalmist has in God. That he is in the steadfast love of God. That's his greatest security. That is the only reason why he knows that he is flourishing. So just like the green olive tree is planted deep in the house of God, Relying on God. That's what he's doing. He's, he's relying on everything uh, from God. So we started our sermon today by asking, why is God's cause worth living for? Basically, the question is, why are you a Christian? Some may say that it's an escape from hell. Yes, but that's not all. Others might say it's because we get a community. That's great, but that's probably not it. Some might say it's because we have a peace of mind. A lot of people, um, when I speak to people in their 30s uh, and, and early 20s, and I ask them, why are you a Christian? Why did you decide to make it? And they say, oh, it gives me purpose. Yes, that's true. It does give us purpose in life. Now, all these answers I agree with, but there's so much more, isn't there? Why is God's cause worth living for? Actually, because we get God. Rather, we are allowed to have God because God has revealed and condescended we sang together. He came to be in a relationship with God. That's the greatest thing about being a Christian is that we have Christ, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. We get to become the green olive tree in the house of God. We get to enjoy a fruitful and good relationship with God. You know, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came to seek and save the lost. He came so that we can have a relationship with God. That's the great message, isn't it? That we will be proclaiming to all of our friends during the week, but also, and especially during Christmas, it's worth telling. It's, it's worth living for. It's worth dying for, like John Allen Chow. Now, it's not just salvation from hell that is in itself awesome. It's the fact that we get to enjoy a relationship with God. Do we realize um, how good that is for our marriage? How good that is for our children? 
how good that it is for our friends and families. Imagine having the fruits of the Spirit growing and affecting every single aspect of our day-to-day lives. Look at the second half of verse 9, because I think that's part of what's going on in verse 9. For what you have done, I will always praise you with the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. There's a future tense there. He, he, he will hope in his name. He is so confident that God is worth praising no matter what happens. The, the Christian life is the good life. And let nobody take that away from us. It's not that we are living the Christian life because it's just good for ourselves according to our own standards. It's the reality that actually we get God. And that is the best thing ever. Uh, I know lots of people may be saying that the Christian life is just suffering, um, that we are just victims who are always being oppressed, that we are just slogging away at suffering because that is what we do as Christians. And in some sense, suffering is a reality, and I think we should agree and understand that. But in another sense, the Christian life is the good life. It's the best life. We are convinced that this is the best way to live because God is good. And so as we go through our lives in our days under the pressures of what people try and tell us, yes, let us suffer as victims of oppression, but do so joyfully and willingly because we are convinced that God is good and the life he offers to us is the best way. I'm going to pray that we will live and be thankful that we are God's green olive tree in his temple. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you have chosen us. We do not deserve to be chosen. But Father, we thank you that you are gracious and forgiving. We thank you that you are steadfast in your love. We thank you that you have given us um, the opportunity to be in a relationship with you. And Father, we pray for all of us. And if there are any people uh, listening or here that have not trusted in you, Father, we ask that you would help us rejoice knowing that you offer forgiveness free to us. Help us in our everyday under the pressure of people who want to take us away from you. Father, help us to rejoice in knowing that we are living the best life. And Father, we ask that not just this year, but in 40 and many more years to come from now, that you would allow Cherrybrook to be a place and a people who always want to be those who grow fruits for the kingdom. And we pray that you would help them all to continually trust in you every day. And in Jesus' name, amen. And I apologize that I'll have to leave. I'll take Celia as well. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'll see you again next week. But thank you very much. Thank you.